News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of something called the lipstick index? This was a term that became popular by a former Estee Lauder CEO, a big name in the cosmetics industry, suggesting that sales of cosmetics stay strong even when there are tough economic times, that people will still purchase lipstick, lipsticks and other indulgences, other things that make them feel good, even though the cost of living in some cases is out of control. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Alexandra Hankas, Canadian beauty ex, uh, industry analyst at Circana. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. It's wonderful to speak with you today. It's such a hot topic these days. It really is because we've certainly talked about the cost of just about everything going up. So are we seeing the lipstick index or or how do we kind of look at what's happening with that to get a better idea on where people are spending and where people are cutting back? That's a great question. So at Circana, we actually track beauty, but also other industries across Canada. And what we're seeing is that beauty is really the outlier. So beauty sales have done tremendously well. It does mirror the lipstick index, but here's the interesting part. It has evolved. So we are seeing a huge wellness story and consumers investing in themselves. They're paying, yes, more on average as rising costs of many commodities have gone up, but they're also making a bigger investment in beauty. They're choosing products that are higher priced, um, more tailored to their beauty needs. And there's a lot of excitement happening across all the categories, including makeup, skincare, fragrance, and hair. So we're seeing a lift across the board. So is it a different approach to it, though, or is it different that in the past when there was, say, a recession or things, uh, people didn't have as much disposable income, still having that indulgence? You might buy a $5 or a $10 lipstick and it was still a treat, but it wouldn't break the bank. Whereas the things that you just described, depending on where you're going and where you're purchasing them, they can still be very expensive. They can, they can. But if you're comparing it to luxury and premium, that's where the treat mentality is still, you know, alive and well with consumers. So instead of buying, you know, or splurging on a designer pair of shoes or a handbag, what we're seeing is they would most, you know, likely pick up a designer lipstick or a fragrance that now is very noticeable. So what we've seen in the last couple of years, especially through the pandemic, is consumers really invested in those iconic fragrances to treat themselves and also, you know, to to treat themselves whether they were going out or not, actually, because fragrance sales fared very well, even when consumers were staying home. So, yes, rising costs across the board, and there is more of an investment. And I wouldn't say it's um, consumer beauty, so like accessible beauty. It is very much a premium and luxury beauty story as well. We're seeing the growth across all price points. Interesting. I understand too, uh, like you said, it's fragrances, it's lipstick, but also hair and that hair products mm-hmm. and hair care is, is a very fast growing category. Yes. Hair care has been one of those um, smaller categories in Canada. So compared to our U.S. counterparts, um, you know, Circana data shows that we're about half 
in terms of the penetration of hair sales. So we're sitting around 6 or 7% in Canada. The U.S. is around 14%. Bigger market, many more brands, as you can appreciate. But in Canada, hair has grown, like, I would say four times um, its size as a category in the last couple years. And we're seeing it show up at retail. We're seeing it online. There's a lot of, you know, Instagram and TikTok, hair tutorials, new product innovation. So consumers are more likely to now purchase a customized hair routine or specific products to get that salon look at home. And they're willing to do that more online than in store. So we are seeing kind of this this huge growth in both online shopping and in-store shopping, which is interesting. And how do you think social media is playing a role in this or has changed this in that I must have done something at some point. I must have searched for a hair product because now all of my feeds are loaded with this new innovative hair clip on how to pull your hair back or or tutorials on yeah. the, the new ponytail or the new braid. And it's not yeah. like I've been searching out those things, but they're everywhere. Yeah, they've, they've certainly grown um, in interest. We've created a lot of excitement. So I absolutely, I would agree that social media is helping boost sales, um, especially when you're seeing those tutorials. I, I, you can imagine my Instagram feed. <laughs> it's full of, you know, beauty apparel and footwear. Um, but more, we're seeing more of the activation and then the translation to sales happen in the beauty space. It's an easy commodity to click through if your interest is peaked and go ahead and purchase. So retailers, influencers, they're making it really easy for consumers to be drawn in and then encouraging them to try the product. And when we look at the the prices then, and the the industry, I'm assuming, is responding to this. And I know even when we were watching as grocers were were testifying as to their profits and if they were price gouging with food, one of the reasons given that grocers were doing so well was they said because of sales growth in areas like cosmetics and at the cosmetics counter, uh, are are the companies responding to this and realizing this is is a really fast growth? growing market and they better make sure they have those products. But are we also seeing the prices go up? I think it's a little bit of both. So we are seeing prices go up, but overall, you know, in, in speaking to, you know, our retail partners and our brand partners, there was a lot of disruption. So you'll, you'll remember as soon as COVID and the pandemic hit, beauty was one of the hardest hit categories as was apparel, as was footwear, but beauty in particular. And it took us a while to recover from that. So, yes, we're now, you know, and seeing this double-digit growth in healthy leading into the holidays, I think we were at 18% growth year-to-date October, which is fantastic. Um, you know, but it, it took a lot of effort from all the brands, all the retail partners, and, you know, it. I would say overall, um, you know, the holidays is a wonderful time for the beauty category, but most categories are shopped um, throughout the year, right? Mm-hmm. As consumers replenish. So there's been a lot of innovation in the, in the space um, that has helped drive sales. Also the in-store experiences, right? So having, you know, the expertise at the counter absolutely does help. So, you know, I think it's, 
we are seeing, you know, the tremendous growth, but it hasn't been without effort. Right. And, and you mentioned the holiday season and going into the holiday season. Is it something is it something that people are more to shop for for themselves and those those indulgences for themselves? Or do you also see a bump in that? Is it something as well that people will purchase as gifts? Again, I think it's both when we're shopping for our friends and family, we are bound to pick up something for ourselves and beauty fits very nicely within that um, fragrance specifically peaks within the last quarter of the year. So we know the holidays is a big time for categories such as fragrance. But, you know, there's wonderful hybrid skincare sets, um, makeup sets um, that make great gifting categories. I was speaking to one of the teachers at my daughter's school, and she was so happy to put together a beauty basket, um, you know, for for um, friends and family. So it, it's a very easy gifting commodity. Um, and, I think it's a little bit of both. I I would say, you know, even from my perspective, I'd love to pick up something for myself when I'm shopping for others. Right. And uh, and when we're talking fragrance or things like that, you can also, it's easier. You don't have to really know the size, although I guess a fragrance is pretty personal. But other things, you don't need to know if it's going to fit somebody or, or that kind of thing a, a bit easier that way. That's right. And one of the interesting things we're seeing with fragrances. Um, there's a lot of discovery sets out there, right? So it gives, um, you know, if you are gifting, you're able to kind of give them a palette of different fragrances and then they can always go back and, and invest in that one fragrance or a couple fragrances to fill their cabinet. But there are some, you know, introductory gifting kits that have done really well. One of the areas of the market that I found, um, and we, we've looked at data looking back a couple of years and we're seeing a shift towards uh, fragrance gift sets that have uh, a mini as well as a larger size bottle. So not necessarily your bath and body complement to the fragrance, but the ones that consumers can travel with. And that's a great story because we know that this year, you know, Canadian consumers travel with up. Um, right. So we did return to social, return to travel, return to other social activities. Um, and the fragrance uh, went right with that, which was a wonderful trend to identify. All right. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for our Friday check in with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. And I don't know whether to, to laugh or cry a bit when we're you're making a Robespierre comment in in <laughs> comparing with our provincial government. Well, the government, this government and previous governments, uh, when they get tired of the fall session and they want to stay on track and they have nothing more to say to the opposition, they have a motion, a bunch of them actually, that technically are known as time allocation. But what they really are is they cut off debate, like to the minute. The the debate shall end at this point, never mind whether or not we've debated all the passages. Some of these bills are complicated. And so the opposition is taking to calling that because the debate is cut off. It's a guillotine. They call it the Robespierre moment. (laughs) We've had a lot of them lately. Uh, The session ended yesterday afternoon on time at about 4.30. 
And in its last act, the New Democrats again cut off debate, used the legislative guillotine on another of their housing bills. So that's been a characteristic of the session. If the government had explained itself and answered all the questions and released all the backup, I think there'd be less grounds for indignation. But in this case, uh, there is some serious, serious gaps in what they did, including on the bill that yesterday afternoon they cut off debate on. This is the one that would limit, lay out the rules under which local government can restrict homeless encampments. So if a local government, as we know, they want to say you can go into that park but not this one, or you can't have a big encampment on the street or in the playground, the government has brought in a law that says where you can and can't do it. And Joe, as you know, because it's been reported in the news too, uh, the Union of BC Municipalities is saying this law would essentially make it impossible for us to restrict homeless encampments anywhere in our municipality. Yeah, and it, I think it was last week. I, I was talking with the, the head of the UBCM and and yeah. saying exactly that that under yeah. these the, under this legislation, there it would be impossible to get an injunction. You could never meet the requirement for yeah. an injunction, and it would completely make it. Yeah, they couldn't do anything, and, and there was a lot of concern over that. There was a lot of concern, and the government did something very sneaky on this one because the premier came out and said. He was surprised at the position of local government, that the provincial government believes this law would actually make it easier by laying down guidelines for when you can and can't restrict encampments. You have to meet certain standards. You have to have off-site accommodation and so forth. So that's, that's the rule. And the premier said, you know, we think this will actually reduce the number of court challenges. And he said, he's surprised. And then he said something interesting. He said, you know what? We're going to hold off on this legislation and we're going to meet with the UBCM and we're going to hear their reservations. And Joe, that created the impression that the government was actually not going to pass the legislation, was actually going to hold off for proper consultation and might even amend it. That's not what happened yesterday. What the New Democrats did was they put the bill through unchanged. Hmm. Essentially, it's the same legislation. All they did was they said, well, we'll consult. But <laughs> Premier admitted that once the legislation is passed, it's too late to change what it says. All the government can do is not proclaim it into law. So law passes by the legislature. It doesn't always take effect. The government says, well, we won't proclaim it until we've talked to local government. But Joe, they didn't say they would amend it because they can't amend it. It's right. now been passed as <laughs> is. It's very sneaky. Uh, essentially, as I read it, they're not going to consult with the UBCM. They're going to meet with local government and try to persuade them that the provincial government's right, the local government is wrong. And if they can't reach agreement... Hmm, I wonder if the government won't just proclaim the law that it thinks is right and local government thinks is wrong.
I think uh, I think we probably know the answer to that, that yes, it's uh, going to go ahead as is. Uh, what about uh, other housing bills? And I know we, we've talked about this and, and well, that one being quite heavy handed, but uh, s- some other bills have passed as well. Yeah, so there's, that, there's, there's five altogether. There's the one that cracked down on short-term rentals of Airbnb uh, variety. And that one, I think there's a certain amount of public support for that. Not obviously if you're in the business of having properties that you rent Airbnb, but that one has gone through. Uh, there's one, interestingly enough, that got support of the opposition, BC United. So this is the one that essentially changes the rules for housing development around transit lines and bus interchanges. In future, uh, the provincial government is basically saying you can have buildings of up to 20 stories around a transit station or a bus exchange. And that's obviously to make housing available um, for people who use transit. Um, There's been some pushback on that. Some people say, you know, the unintended consequence is going to be that a lot of low-rise apartment buildings around SkyTrain and bus loops will be torn down and replaced with modern, state-of-the-art, expensive 20-story towers. But that's the controversy. But on that one, BC United said they think that's a good piece of legislation, and they voted for it. So they're not opposed to everything the government did. Uh, The biggest controversy involves the legislation that they imposed closure on earlier this week. And that is the one, Jill, that represents the biggest transfer of power between local government and provincial government in modern times on housing. Essentially, the provincial government is abolishing exclusive single-family neighborhoods, zoning for single-family neighborhoods, and saying in future, uh, multiple unit uh, homes, buildings are allowed in single family neighborhoods. So multiple unit, triplexes, fourplexes, and in some cases, six units. So that could transform every neighborhood in the province. The government has been, there's been a lot of municipal pushback on that. Even municipalities that think it's a good idea, Jill, They want to know how it's going to work, and the government has not released how it's going to work. That's coming in regulations. They say those will be out later this year. Municipalities are scrambling because the law also says that municipalities have to rewrite their zoning to go along with the provincial rules, and they don't have the rules yet. Continuing now with Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, just before the break, you were talking about the various pieces of legislation that have been brought in, all dealing with housing, and that municipalities have to adapt by June. What happens if they don't? Uh, Yes, well, the provincial government has the power to override them. Mm. I mean, the ultimate hammer in this is that the province can step in and void uh, local government approvals. They can impose on local government. The legislation says once a provincial housing plan, a provincially approved housing plan is in place uh, for local government, then any proposal, development proposal that fits that plan goes ahead. No more public hearings. You know, we had a municipality here on Vancouver Island, uh, View Royal, suburb of Victoria, that sarcastically the other day had what it called the last public hearing. I mean... They're shocked at what is coming toward them. And 
I think even local government that, and many of them do agree, we need to have more housing and they want provincial assistance building it. And they recognize that NIMBY can't rule the day. Even those are saying, you know, a lot of our residents are not going to be aware of what this is going to do to their neighborhoods until it starts happening on their doorstep. Until one of these projects that doesn't have to go through a public hearing anymore just gets rubber stamped, approved, and goes ahead. And that's the area of controversy. Now, Jill, the provincial government has made some extraordinary claims about what this legislation will do. They claim it will lead to 130,000 new homes over 10 years. They also claim that it can lead to a 14% reduction in housing prices in British Columbia. And when you ask them, uh, where did you get those numbers from? Did you pick them out of the air? No, no, no. They've got an economic model, Jill, that backs all this up. So Vancouver Sun tried to find out this week, asked the modelers, and the modelers said, we can't talk about this. We signed a non-disclosure agreement with the government. So yesterday I asked the minister, as he's been asked several times, Minister Housing Minister Callon, um, you've got this model. Will you release it? Nope. They'll give it to us when they're ready to give it to us, Jill, and they say that will be sometime in the month of December. Maybe they'll hand it out on Christmas Eve as a present uh, to all these requests. But, you know, if you're in local government, right, and you're trying to adapt to this and you're going, oh, okay, we're going to get more housing and housing prices are going to drop, we'd like to see the model and see how they demonstrated this because you'd think that's key that the government can actually carry this out They say they have the model. Cabinet's seen it. They won't share it with the public. Which, again, so frustrating for municipalities and cities and the public on a government that I believe once said they wanted to be more transparent. Yeah, it's a very controlling government. Uh, I thought one of the best speeches of the session, and it was delivered in indignation, was by Adam Olson, Green House Leader. And in frustration at all these questions they won't answer, and all these ramrodded passages of legislation on time allocation, he said, you know, why don't you just bring the premier's office into the chamber here and let them run things? Because that's what's happening anyway. Not listening to the opposition, you're not listening to the public, you're not listening to local government or anything, so why don't you just abandon the facade (laughs) of actual debate and just bring the premier's office in here and let them call the shots. So, it, it, I mean, it was a very frustrating session for the opposition and particularly for Jill, a political party that, after all, worked in partnership with the New Democrats. And Sonia Furstenau of the Greens said this week, you know, she, she looked at all this imposed guillotine on debate, refusal to answer questions, refusal to re- release reports. And she said, you know what? The New Democrats have turned into what they claimed to despise when they were in opposition and the Liberals were doing this kind of stuff. And uh, you've certainly been covering it uh, long enough to see those similarities too, I would imagine. Yeah, I have seen some similarities and certainly previous governments have used closure, including, yes, the Liberals did a lot of it and the New Democrats complained about it. I've not seen, uh, I can't recall a closure motion, a guillotine that was as ruthless as the one the New Democrats did this week 
Jill, when you bring in closure, you usually say you give the legislature a couple more days of debate before it takes effect. Right. On w Wednesday afternoon, the government House leader, Calon, brought in a motion at 3 p.m. that cut off debate at 3.30. By the time the House had voted on doing it, NDP majority put it through, there were like 10 minutes left to debate the bill. So it was the most ruthless cutoff I've seen. Uh, and as, a, as a Sonia Furston or the Greens said, you know, the Democrats used to depose this in opposition and say, well, we'd never run a government that way. Now they are. Hmm. All right. Well, Vaughn, I am not cutting you off here, but we are out of time. So thank you so much for this. <laughs> it's our Robespierre moment, <laughs> yes. uh, Jill, and I can live with it. <laughs> All right. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Bye. This is Mornings with Simi. That means it's time for our weekly check-in with Washington correspondent for Global News, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. We have some breaking news and some sad news about the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, this news uh, just within the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to ever sit uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, nominated by uh, former President Ronald Reagan, died today at the age uh, of 93 after a bout with dementia. Uh, this is it's, it's a big moment in, in American history because not only was she the first woman to sit on the court that was a kind of leaning conservative court at the time, and although she was conservative, she kind of was seen as an ideological center uh, and, and was was pivotal in some of the biggest rulings, um, you know, during her tenure on the court, including upholding uh, Roe v. Wade uh, when there was a case of Planned Parenthood versus uh, uh, Casey. Um, it, it was it was a decision by Sandra Day O'Connor that allowed Roe v. Wade to continue to be the law of the land for decades. So this is a huge loss, not only for kind of the court itself, but uh, but for the country. And just looking back as well, and you mentioned that uh, big case and her involvement and some of her accomplishments as well, and, and really known for uh, researched opinions and well-thought-out opinions, it really is a big loss. It, it is. And, and even when there were opinions that she didn't fully agree with when she was writing, um, you know, doing her write-ups, she would oftentimes write very, very short and simple statements to try and get a point across. Uh, she was somebody who, who, who was said to have tried to build consensus you know, almost as if she were a politician trying to ensure that everybody was kind of on board and moving in, in one direction. You know, she she was a, a trailblazer at the end of the day, the first woman. There have been, you know, just a handful of women on the court since Sandra Day O'Connor first sat. But she is the one who opened the door um, to allow this to be a more diverse uh, and inclusive bench in America. And this is going to be a big loss for this country. All right. And again, that news just breaking within the last 15 minutes uh, that Sandra Day O'Connor has passed away at the age of 93. Reggie, let's take a look at some other news headlines and George Santos and a bit of an update when it comes to his expulsion. What's happening there? Yeah, look, so so until yesterday, um, it almost seemed like George Santos's time in uh, in Congress was was running short. Uh, there were more Republicans coming out saying that, you know, between the ethics committee report that came out against him and the 23 federal charges that he was indicted on earlier earlier this year linked to fraud, uh, that that was going to be enough for him. And Santos himself had already said, look, I'm not going to resign, but I'm not going to run for my seat again next year. Flip it to today where there are more Republicans coming out and saying, whoa, whoa, maybe we don't need to expel and kick out George Santos because it creates a dangerous precedent. He hasn't been convicted of anything, but also 
the House Speaker has come out to say that he will vote no on expulsion. And it becomes a question of, will it be a follow the leader situation here? And will Republicans keep somebody in Congress who has garnered um, significant negative attention to his own party? And we know this isn't the first attempt to expel him. Can you remind us, though, I know there there were the, the revelations that he had fabricated parts of his biography, but what else has he been accused of? Well, I mean, yeah. So he fabricated not only parts of his biography, you know, including his his work history, but also his family history, including the fact saying that his mother died, um, you know, in on nine eleven in New York City when she wasn't even in the country at that point. But beyond that, the the charges that he faces uh, have to do with fraud and have to do with his twenty twenty two run for the House, where he was essentially you know, living a lifestyle on the money that was being donated to his campaign and using it for Botox treatments and using it to 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 purchase subscriptions uh, on OnlyFans and using it for lavish purchases uh, for himself. And ultimately, you know, he was charged for, for the series of campaign finance violations. And beyond that, to take it out of the kind of uh, uh, criminal world and put it into the political world, it faced an ethics uh, uh, committee review. And the ethics committee, which is bipartisan, came out with bipartisan criticism of George Santos. So the question here is, will Republicans risk expelling him and risk their own slim, slim, slim majority, which would you know allow them to only lose three votes? Or do they keep him and then potentially hand Democrats some gold during the election next year and say, look at what Republicans are doing in the House? And do you think we'll have a definitive answer later today? We, we should have an answer possibly, Jill, within the next hour. The vote is expected to take place sometime in the next 15 minutes. You know, oftentimes these votes get 20 or 30 minutes with a bit of talking before and after. So sometime by noon D.C. time, we'll find out whether or not the expulsion happened. If George Santos is kicked out, it is effective immediately. If, it is, if, he's, if he survives this, Democrats will immediately start coming out and TV ads will hit the likely hit the screens within the next couple of days. All right, we will be watching for that. And another story that we've been hearing on the noise, uh, the news as well, and this has to do with the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and some of his words about uh, Israel. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he was in Israel uh, uh, yesterday, this kind of fourth trip to the Middle East, the shuttle diplomacy continuing, meeting not only with Israeli leaders, but meeting with the leader of the Palestinian Authority as well. But there were some, some stronger words given to Israel on this trip, and it comes as the White House expresses concern here as this war wages on uh, and as more civilians die in Gaza. Uh, Secretary Blinken telling the Israelis, look, if your war starts again, which we obviously saw that that happened over the last few hours, it needs to be conducted differently. You need to do something to protect civilians, especially if you move to the south, where you force civilians from the north to flee to. And this comes amid growing public pressure on Israel and the United States to do something to protect those civilians. And the question is, if Israel doesn't change its game, does that force the United States to rethink its position on support? So, you know, these are consequential words that were given from the U.S. to Israel in the public spectrum. Right. And I think that's important to mention, too, like you said, in the public spectrum, saying that Israel could start losing that international support if it doesn't change change its kind of tactic going forward. Do you think it's different, though, what's being said not in the public domain? 
Well, I mean, look, there, there, are, there are phone calls that happen between Washington uh, and the State Department and, and their counterparts in Israel that are off the record that we don't often get a, a deeper, you know, understanding of beyond a basic readout. And I'm sure that there are communications and conversations that are going back and forth. You know, I talked to some senior White House officials earlier this week, and they said that some of the calls were happening that we didn't know about. So there are likely, um, you know, words that are being spoken from the U.S. to, to Israel, um, of, of, you know, possibly from experience of the United States saying, look, this is what happens when you put yourself into a war that you might not be able to get yourself out of. Please think of the future. But that flips to the public sphere where we've heard the White House say, look, we can focus on the war. We can focus on defense rights. But we also need to look at the day after this war and who's going to be in charge, not only of governing Gaza, but of rebuilding Gaza. That's part of this conversation that's now spilling into the public that is also garnering the attention of governments around the world. All right. Lots to keep track of today. Reggie, as always, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. What were you doing in grade nine? My next guest is a University Hill secondary student who has just taken the top prize in the 12 to 15 category of the Youth Innovation Showcase. This is all part of a virtual STEM competition put on by the Science Fair Foundation BC. And Jora Singh Nahal is joining me now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Yeah, hi. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Well, congratulations on taking this prize. Before we get into what you made and how you got the prize, what did you win? Yeah, so uh, basically uh, for the Youth Innovation Showcase, I won that Young Innovator of uh, BC, like the 2023 award. And also um, I won a $5,000 prize. Nice. Well, well, congratulations on winning that. Now, tell us a little bit what you did. You came up with a a type of soap recycler. What is this? Yeah, so I basically like created like a noble soap recycling device, like as you said, like for hotels, like because like hotels throw away like millions and millions of soaps like every day. And that causes pollution and economic loss. And like currently there's no practical solution. And so, like, my device, it has two microcontrollers, an Arduino Uno and ESP32. And, like, it simultaneously runs two programs, mixing and dispensing. So housekeepers, like hotel housekeepers, just throw leftover soaps in a container. And it's connected to warm water and a servo motor for mixing and makes a soapy solution. And then this solution then goes to another container to dispense and then to the laundry machine. Hmm. So, like, my device saves our natural resources, saves hotels money, and saves the environment. So, yeah. Well, it sounds amazing because I, I didn't realize this number was so high, but, but when you think about it and you think of all the hotels, it makes sense that more than 5 million partially used soap bars end up in the landfill because I, I guess that's, I mean, one guest uses them and they get tossed out. Yeah. Yeah, there's like 700,000 hotels worldwide. So, like, each of them, like, they produce, like, like tons and tons of bars just like a day so it adds up and how did you come up with the idea and then follow through with with making the prototype and how did you come up with the idea and how long did that take yeah so um like i've been like because like from like the start like i've always like wanted to create like a meaningful like meaningful projects like with social like uh social impact and like that all that always like motivates me like uh like for this project my personal experience actually inspired me to create this noble device 
like my family owns hotels like for many years like before i was born so like that's when i found out that like hotels they unintentionally like throw away like partially used soaps and there's like actually no practical solution so that's why i like wanted to solve this problem and like i created this like unique and novel product so yeah and then like i've been working on this like for the past year and uh like i've been learning coding for uh, since the pandemic and like since like the past year i've been working on this like project so yeah uh, and were you surprised that there wasn't anything like this that 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 this hadn't come up before and that that nobody else it seems had tried to solve this problem yeah so like there there's like uh like there's no like practical solutions like there's this one solution but like it's mainly like uh like it like basically gets all like the hotel like all the hotel soaps it collects them and then brings them to factories to melt and mold them to make new soaps and like it's it's actually very good because it sends those soaps to developing countries but like there's one major like uh like the drawback to this because like of logistics because like as i said there's 700,000 hotels worldwide so like collecting all those soaps like regularly like in trucks and bringing them to factories you'd require like so many trucks and like thousands of factories so there's like actually that's not a practical solution so that's why like i made like my device which is like uh like recycles the soap waste like uh right in the hotels itself in at source and it eliminates all those like logistic costs so yeah and and is your your hope then that hotels will adopt this technology and will start putting them in and installing them in in their different in their rooms? Yeah, so like uh currently that's like uh, my next stage. I'm like contacting hotels and like making like uh more like prototypes so that I can like uh like te- like get other hotels to test this and then I can improve and like test it again and like continue with that cycle until I have like one final product that I can like mass produce. Amazing. And you said that you've worked on this for the past year and uh, I, I, will you continue then working on this or do you have other projects that you would like to get to as well? Yeah, so I'm going to continue like working on this project like on the side and like also like I have like like other projects as well like because like I code like I coded like another app like last year I coded like a drowsiness detection app and they also won like a Canada wide science for like bronze medal for that and then i went to the youth like this youth innovation showcase last year as well and it became a finalist and also like i've i'm like creating like other apps as well so yeah well i can't wait to see what you come up with next jora again congratulations on this prize and for taking that category and thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning yeah thank you so much for having me This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to talk about numbers that have just come out from Statistics Canada when it comes to employment and those numbers as well as some support for wood manufacturers, wood product manufacturers in BC. Brenda Bailey is joining us now, Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, good morning, Joe. I want to talk about the uh, support for these wood product manufacturers, but I was hoping uh, maybe we could start looking at the the labor force uh, survey and uh, some new numbers that we have out when it comes to unemployment and what's happening there. Yeah, sounds good. Um so we've got our monthly numbers for November and uh, overall employment is up 9,000 jobs compared to last month. 
Um, so far, we've added 56,300 jobs this year to the economy. And um, our unemployment rate is 5.3%. So that's the fourth lowest among all provinces and just behind Quebec, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And when you talk about adding the 9,000 jobs, do we know what, what types of jobs those are? Yeah, we, we have a breakdown of uh, some of the categories. So the largest gains um, were in manufacturing and in the healthcare and social science uh, social assistance sector, as well as information, culture, and recreation. And uh, these are pretty big job categories, so um, it, a lot tucks into them, but I was particularly happy to see the growth in manufacturing jobs. It's really important in British Columbia that we continue to see that growth. Um, we're doing a lot of work to try to build out manufacturing across the province. It's a, a space where there's lots of uh, upside and room for growth. And when you talk about manufacturing, then is there a specific type of manufacturing or an area there that the government is focused on? Yeah, um, manufacturing generally, but in particular, um, we've got a $180 million manufacturing jobs fund, and um, that fund is designed to help grow these high-paying jobs all over the province. About half of the fund is geared specifically to forestry. So we know in forestry-dependent communities, if there's a downturn or a mill closure or something of that nature, it just has huge impact on those communities. And so um, encouraging the growth of the manufacturing sector provides other well-paying jobs and more stability in community. I wanted to talk to you as well, and this was a release that the government had put out as far as supporting these, uh, speaking of manufacturing, supporting uh, wood product manufacturers in BC. And this is for six particular companies. Where is this money going and what will it be used for? Yeah, so this is the Manufacturing Jobs Fund, and it's used in a number of different ways. Um, uh, I'll give you some examples. Um, We've seen folks use it to build out mass timber. So mass timber is a value-add wood product. It it, um, takes uh, wood and combines it, so it becomes very, very strong and uh, cross-grain, and it's a wonderful uh, low-GHG building product. Uh, really encouraging mass timber growth in British Columbia. We're actually um, the jurisdiction with the highest number of mass timber buildings, so we're trying it out and using it domestically, but we're also really interested in this becoming a a very um, valued export for British Columbia. So this investment in mass timber allows us to get more money out of every log we bring out of our forest, so it's it's value add, but also really drive those high-paying jobs and at the same time create a product for building that can displace concrete, for example, but has really low GHGs. So it's an exciting product and it's an area we're doing investments. But the Manufacturing Jobs Fund is actually pretty flexible. For example, uh, last month I was out in Surrey and we made an investment into Punjab milk products. And this is a company that makes um, delicious um, uh, milk products that they ship all over the world and, um, and you can have it on Air Emirates if you're flying and a really, really neat BC success story. And so we're helping them expand their manufacturing as well. Um, in the, the release of, the, of those numbers uh, with the, the funding again going to the, the, the uh, six wood product manufacturers, it says it's contributing that the, the BC government will contribute as much as $6.49 million, uh, through this fund. How does that work then? Is it companies have to apply for it or what does it mean when it says as much as? 
Yeah, so the way that the um, the fund is structured is companies can apply directly for it up to $10 million or 20% of a manufacturing expansion. So depending on what the needs are and what the growth opportunity is for the company, those numbers are going to uh, be flexible up to a maximum of $10 million. So it's it's negotiated on each company. And as well, I, I believe in one of the scenarios, it said that it would lead to the the creation of 25 jobs at one particular sawmill. Uh, how do you know that the fund or how, how, do, how can you make that direct connection that in this case, it's a sawmill receiving as much as $4 million for expansion to, and that 25 jobs will be created? Yeah, the way that it's structured is um, these are delivered in milestone payments. It's kind of a, a technology we use uh, or a type of payment we use in technology as well. It's um, for a deliverable, then a payment comes and another deliverable and a payment comes. And that's to ensure that the investment's protected and what the business has said it's building out, it's actually building out and on time and on budget and all those good things. So there's milestones they have to hit to unlock the funding that we're contributing. And how do you decide uh, not only the, the specific companies that can get this funding, but even the, the industry itself and in that I'm sure there, there will be people listening to this, uh, restaurant owners or people in other industries that have to pay back their loans that are looking at a pretty bleak future and, and would also like some kind of aid. But how do you, describe, uh, how do you decide that, that the money in the fund will, will target specifically an industry like wood manufacturing? Yeah, so of the $180 million that we've targeted, about half of that is protected for uh, forestry or forestry transitioning areas. But the the rest is really broad. So manufacturing is a pretty broad category. Um, and um, what I would say in regards to the challenges that small businesses are facing with the SIBA loans coming up, you know, these federal loans, we hear about this a lot. Uh, it's really tough on businesses to have to pay back these loans uh, in this timeline. And so we've been advocating with the federal government to extend the timeline. Um, I've met with Minister Ng and Minister Valdez, and I know the Premier has written a a strongly worded letter. Um, But unfortunately, those loan uh, payments are are scheduled for January. So if I could just say about that, um, lots of folks are going to be doing some shopping in the next month. Please think about your small businesses in your local community, because um, if we can choose to spend our dollars there, it's really helpful. Amazon will be fine, but our local uh, businesses could really could really use our support. These loans are, are um, affecting them for sure. And with them coming due in January, and like you said, there there have been letters written and there have been uh, pleas made to for another extension. Uh, do, mm-hmm. do you think there is any chance of the, that happening, or is it going to be this will be the January deadline that will be set? Yeah, we haven't had any indications from the federal government where they're going on this, unfortunately, and um, it's just it's it's really hard to read. So I'm sorry, I don't I don't know which way they're going to go on this. Are you concerned about jobs in that industry? On the on the one hand, like you said, with the new numbers that, that are out today, not a huge change when we're looking at the unemployment numbers with BC sitting at 5.3%. So a very small decline. But are you concerned with with January, with the loan repayments and not only that industry, but but other industries as well? Well, you know, there's there's no question. There's um, very strong global headwinds, right? I mean, we're we're seeing inflation and high interest rates, and the global economy is slowing. But the good news is, BC's got a diverse economy, and um, we've remained steady. You know, I've been on this file for a year and doing these job numbers every month, and I I would say that, you know, the piece that stands out for me is is that it's it's steady. 
and um, and not every province is having that experience. And so I I think we need to continue having a steady hand on the economy and um, and uh, keep going in that way. And I I know um, you mentioned restaurants and um, the restaurant sector is um, has been impacted by changing consumer behavior and other factors and. Um, doing different things to help support them. Um, we've put in a, a opportunity for restaurants to buy their alcohol for sale uh, at wholesale pricing. That saves them about 20% when they go to purchase their alcohol. And alcohol is a place where they make quite strong margins in the restaurant industry. So I circled back with my team and asked, you know, how much money have we been able to to put back in the pockets of restaurateurs? And it's been $91 million since we brought that program in. So that's an example of how we can specifically help, you know, specific things by industry and I know that uh, the restaurant sector is using that money to ensure that they can hire employees and and pay the additional costs that unfortunately they're seeing when they go to the grocery store just like the rest of us so we'll continue to um, to look for opportunities to support businesses and make sure that uh, that they can weather these storms. Minister Brenda Bailey thank you so much for your time today appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you thank you Jill. This is Mornings with Simi couple of stories to get to now and joining us once again is BC's Attorney General Nikki Sharma. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. I want to talk first about the federal government's bail form legislation on its way now to becoming law. We know that Justice Minister Arif Farhani was urging MPs to accept the amendments to Bill C-48. They did so unanimously. What are your thoughts on this bail form legislation and will this make a difference? Yeah, thanks. Uh, So BC's been taking a leadership role in advocating for these specific changes. So it took a little bit longer than we had hoped, but I'm really glad that it passed unanimously in Ottawa. Um, My hope is that the justice system will have better tools to deal with repeat violent offenders. So those people that have used weapons in the past, that have used uh, bladed knives, things that are uh, a public safety concern, that now the court will have better tools to say, hey, this person should be held and kept off the streets. Um, unless there's a good reason or a good plan to have them out. And so it fills, I think, what we were saying is, is a gap in, in a, in, that we think was needed to be filled in the legal system when it comes to that. So this is a bill that expands the use of the reverse onus provisions, and that's, again, for certain offenders, I think some uh, like what you were just mentioning. Can you explain, though, what does that mean as far as the reverse onus provisions? Yeah, so it's it's a part of our our justice system already. So most of, you know everybody understands that you're innocent until proven guilty. But in some circumstances, a judge can say, "Look, we think this individual should be held before trial because there's a risk to public safety, or there's a risk to harm, or some other reasons that they might flee." Um, and in those scenarios, a judge will um, order detention before trial. And what the bail reform does is say, "Look, if this person." has been proven to show that they've uh, been violent um, by using weapons or different things in the past and they're in on an offense, it should shift to saying this person should be held unless there's a good reason to release them. So it just gives that extra, um, for a very a very um, specific group of people, repeat violent offenders, they give that extra tool in the justice and keep, to keep communities safe. Does it compel judges, though, to keep somebody behind bars to not grant somebody bail if if not that the boxes are checked, but if it is, say, a crime where a weapon is used or it's a repeat violent offender? Is it is it still at the discretion of the judge, though, or does this make it more clear? 
Um, it, the judge always has discretion because every scenario before them is going to be different. So we have to have, for our justice and work, we have to have judges to look at each individual case um, to make sure that there's, you know, you're applying it to that individual. But it gives the justice system, I think, better tools to deal with repeat violent offenders because the ownership says, um, you know, like this person, because of the history, should be held unless there's a good reason to release them, unless there's something that shows that the public safety and that there's no harm to be done. So it gives like a little bit different of a consideration for a certain group of people for judges to have. There's been some pushback or, or some concern raised by, by some groups saying that this could potentially make bail more difficult to obtain for certain groups and, and pointing to the overrepresentation of Indigenous people behind bars, Black people behind bars. What are your thoughts on those concerns that have been raised? I think they're really important concerns. I, I, I think BC's approach has been um, very comprehensive. So we think it's right that repeat filing offending is sing- singled out, but we also have uh, Indigenous justice strategy and, and um, anti-racism work that we're doing to make sure that the kind of negative effects of the justice system are lessened on, tar- on targeted groups because we know that's been harmful. Like none of the, the solutions to, um, you know, lots of these issues are, are easy, they're complicated, so our approach is hitting it at different levels um, with our Safer Communities Action Plan. And part of that work is making sure that, um, you know, Indigenous people are not overly targeted and we can lessen the impacts and that there's a lot of a very major effort in the government for, to do anti-racism work for the systemic racism in our system. So it all has to work together, but we think the balance is, if you are a repeat violent offender and have been shown to do harm to a community, then in that scenario, we need better tools. That was our focus. All right. I, I wanted to ask you as well, and uh, I, I know that you've seen the comments and, and, and you have responded to this, but, but you made some comments recently about a case in BC, and it was uh, a pretty disturbing case of voyeurism. Uh, it w- was uh, the use of a camera inside an electric toothbrush. Uh, the person charged, of, in this case, escaped jail time. Uh, you made some comments uh, about the judge in this case that is getting reaction. Can you remind us a, a bit about your comments and, and why you said this. Well, I, you know, as, as attorney general in this province, I think that it's, it's disturbing that so few people come forward and we all know the stats when it comes to sexualized violence that they experience. And in my view, the just system needs to do a better job of making it um, better or easier for people to come forward. And that means having conversations about how it shows up in courtrooms, how it shows up um, in in various parts of the just system. And as attorney general, I own my part of that. Um, I own the part that we need to do better and figure out systems that I can do to make it better. And I just expect every independent actor in the justice and whether the judges, the crown prosecutors, the court system to also do that work. Um, you know, when people come forward with, with um, these harmful things, we need to understand a trauma-informed, victim-focused approach that, that understands the impacts of sexualized violence on the individual. And we need to make sure that um, people feel more comfortable coming forward um, and it's, it's a crime at the end of the day. And, and so few people are reporting or, or seeking justice for that crime. And I think it's something for all of us to be concerned about.
Uh, and in this case as well, so this was a West Vancouver man. He was given a conditional discharge after admitting to uh, putting that hidden camera, capturing nude images of an international student. Uh, in the ruling, the judge found that a marital intimacy deficit contributed to his conduct. Um, as expected, there's been a lot of, of negative response to this, people really questioning this and questioning this case. Uh, but you in particular, because you're the Attorney General, uh, there have been letters written from both the Canadian Bar Association Association, the BC branch, the Law Society of, B, uh, Society of BC, raising concerns about your comments. Do you think it's appropriate that they raised concerns about what you said about this case? Um, you know, I, I understand the independence of the judiciary, and we have a great justice system in many ways. I meet judges all the time. They're committed to their work, doing great work, and I respect that independence as, as somebody who's elected. Um, but I don't think we need to be afraid to have conversations about how our system can be better and how we can do things better. And I think that's an important thing. And like I said, as Attorney General, I own my piece of that. And I think all independent actors in the justice system need to do that as well. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with uh, the Law Society or the uh, Bar Association about the work and, 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 you know, what we need to do better when it comes to dealing with um, receiving people when they've experienced sexual assault or sexual violence, because they're not coming to the justice system far too often, right? Right. And, and even uh, one of the comments that I found fr- in the letters saying that, that your comments risk undermining the public's confidence in the criminal justice system. I mean, I think that that horse has left the barn, hasn't it? I mean, the whole reason we're having these conversations is because people are losing confidence in that system. We have a really strong justice system, and I, I see it all the time where it's working well, but I don't think we, can, we need to be afraid about having conversations where we need to do better personally. I think that's part of our job to constantly understand how we can adapt and improve to meet what society expects of our system. I think that's part of my job as Attorney General, and I think it's part of everybody's job in the justice system, and I, I think that's work we have to do continually, right? Uh, and you talked about uh, as your role as an elected official. Do you think it would make a difference? Would it make the system more accountable if judges were elected? Um, you know, I think it's a vital part of our justice system to have in, an independent judiciary that's not elected. Um, I think that that keeps it strong. And I think compared to the American model, we should be proud of that in Canada, um, that, that we have this a non-political, non-partisan judiciary that operates independently. So when somebody goes to court, they're not faced with any partisan considerations with their judgment. I think that's very important. Um, you know, I think I think um, we have something to be proud of there compared to the states. Um, and, and But to me, it's just con- continually we have to think about, and that's the responsibility we all have for such an important institution in our democracy, how we can be better, you know, how we can continually improve and respond to society, and I think that's part of all of our work. Nikki Sharma, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you uh, again so much for coming back on the show. Appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there? 
Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.